0: Psalm 95 explains the what, the why, and the how of worship. Verse 1 reveals that worship is oriented towards God, not humanity. Verse 2 reveals that an attitude of thanksgiving is the proper mindset in which we enter into God's presence. Verse 3-5 to and 7 reveals the content of worship is on God as King, Creator, and Shepherd. And verse 6 reveals that the act of worship is one of surrender and submission. While the date and the author of this psalm are unknown, based on the context, we can determine that it was likely written for worship in the temple. Also, Psalm 95 is associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. And while the theme of this psalm is about worshiping God, interestingly, it ends with a warning, a warning about worshiping God. And so we've entitled... Psalm 95, worshiping the Lord, worshiping the Lord. In verses 1 through 7a, the first part of verse 7, let's look at what it has to say about worship. Verse 1, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his Pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Now verse one tells us the what of worship. O come, let us sing for the joy to the Lord. Now the verb sing means to sing aloud, to shout, to give a ringing cry. Here it's expressing joy in praise of Yahweh. Jeremiah prophesying Israel's return from exile, sees the redeemed coming and shouting or singing in the heights of Zion. Jeremiah 31.12 For Isaiah, when the dead are raised, they awake and sing or shout. Isaiah 26 verse 19 This is the cry of those delivered from exile and death. And it's no wonder the psalmist continues, Let us shout joyfully, that is, shout in triumph over our enemies to the rock of our salvation. And Yahweh is the rock or the fortress, that, that is the secure refuge of those who he has delivered. In verse two, we're exhorted to come before his presence, literally his face with praise or thanksgiving. And so as we come before his praise his face, rather, we're to come with praise, with thanksgiving, with boisterous worship. And verse three explains why we worship God our rock in verse one, because the Lord is a great God. The adjective great separates him from all other gods. That's why we have the definite article there. He's a great God. The same thought also appears in Psalm 86 verse 10. You are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. In fact, as verse 3 says, he is the great king above all gods. He's the great monarch who rules all other gods. Now the word gods here, the plural, with the little g, the small g, is referring to angelic beings, particularly demonic powers, who manifest themselves as idols. You can cross-reference that with Deuteronomy 32, 16, and 17. As the great king above all gods, he rules history. This great king is the creator and sustainer of all things, according to verse 4 and 5. The depths of the earth, which refers to the underworld... Uh, Are in his hand. The peaks of the mountain are his also. And furthermore, he says the sea is created by him. His hands form the dry land, which are references to Genesis 1 9 and 10. And so when we see this metaphor of God's hands, it stresses the immensity of God in relationship to his creation. Think about it, it's his hand that created the dry land. Think about how massive the world is. How much more immense is God in that he created it? And so we have a statement here about the immensity of God. His hand also communicates his power and control, Exodus 15, 6. Jesus says of his sheep, Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand, John ten twenty eight. And so his hand displays his power, his control over all things. And as we meditate on the Creator, it leads to a new exhortation in verse 6, where we're now told how to worship. Come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. The very word worship means to prostrate or bow oneself in surrender and submission to a superior. That's why when Moses met God, he bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped in Exodus 34, verse 8. The idea of bowing down assumes a posture of supplication. In Psalm 72 verse 9 it says those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him. You know we wonder why do we bow our heads when we worship. Because we're prostrating ourselves, we're surrendering ourselves, we're submitting ourselves to our superior, to the sovereign one, to our maker. And and, and, and believe me kneeling if you will represents our humility before God and we need to have a humble position before God because he is our maker. And, you know, we need to make a very crucial point here. Our worship is not centered in what we get out of church. You know, there's this mindset today that, well, you know, when I come to church, I need to be inspired. Or when I come to church, I need to be edified. Listen, there's plenty of times for you to be edified. There's plenty of times for you to be uh, inspired. But worship isn't that place. Worship centers on submitting, on surrendering to God. It is centered on what we are giving God. See, worship is the turning of our lives over to God and nothing less. It's a surrender to His Lordship. And the service of worship ought to be a service of surrender. And I'll tell you, if we could really get a, a grasp of this, of what it means to surrender and submit. It would deliver us from much of this self-centered, so-called worship of the modern church. The basis for this submission, this surrender, is given in verse 7. We worship because God is our God. We belong to Him as Creator. But... He's also our Redeemer. He's our personal God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. It pictures here God as a shepherd who feeds his people and his pasture and protects them by his hand. And as shepherd, he receives uh, God receives the ultimate expression as shepherd when Jesus declared himself to be the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep in John verse 10 and 11. And so in verses 1 through 7a, We have here the what, the why, and the how of worship. The what is that we are to lift up our voice in praise to God and sing to the Lord to shout joyfully. You know, regardless of what we we sing, the songs we sing, they're supposed to be joyful. In other words, you know, and it doesn't matter how you play a song; it's not going to be joyful. You can have the most upbeat-sounding song in the world, but if if your heart attitude isn't to sing this in a manner that praises God, that is joyful, then it's not going to come out joyfully. It's going to come out like a funeral dirge. We can sing happy birthday and sound enthusiastic. Or we can sing happy birthday and sound like Eeyore. Folks, our worship of the Lord needs to be joyful. because And we have to come to him with thanksgiving. Now the why for such praise is that he's the rock of our salvation. He's the great God. He's the great king above all gods. He's our maker. He's our God. And we're the sheep in his hand. And the how of worship is we need to come in submission and surrender to him. That's why Romans 12.1 tells us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, which is our reasonable service. It's our priestly duty. That's what the word reasonable service means. Priestly duty in the temple. And now we come to the last part of this psalm, verse, part B of verse 7 through 11. And we have a warning. And the warning involves answering the question, what will keep us from worship as surrender? That's what the warning is going to answer that question. What keeps us from worshiping as surrender or submission? Today... If you would hear his voice, do not harden your heart as at Meribah, as in the day of Masa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and said they are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger that they shall not enter into my rest. Hard hearts. There's the answer to the question. What keeps us from worship? from worshipping as a form of submission or surrender and it's simple hard hearts that's why the psalmist hears Yahweh recall the exodus tradition as an appropriate warning listen now that's the idea of today if you'll hold your voice listen right now the Lord is speaking and he's warning us as we have seen of the hardening our hearts as in the day or as at Meribah now interesting the word Meribah was The rebellion or the place of rebellion, the place of contention, as in the day of Masa or as in the day of trial, the day when they tempted God. This refers back to Israel's doubting God's presence in the, presence rather, in the Exodus and his subsequent provision of water from the rock. Exodus 17, 17 says, So Moses called the name of the place Massa and Moriah because of the contention, the rebellion of the children of Israel, and because they tempted, they tried, they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The Lord declares in verse 9 that the fathers tested or tempted Ie Exodus seventeen verse two God and tried him as he says they saw my work in judgment and redemption of course this reminds us of Numbers chapter fourteen that was the tenth and final time God had had enough in two years there were ten different occasions between the uh, the actual exiting of Egypt. And standing in Kadesh Barnea on the, uh, on, on the border of the promised land, it over that two-year period, ten times these people had rebelled against God and tested him. And he finally said, I had enough. Forty years, he says. Now that means that, that includes the next 38 years. So ten times between the actual Exodus event and coming to the promised land border when they sent in the 12 spies. And then over the next 38 years, they continued to test God and rebel against God and groan and moan and complain and so on and so forth, even though they saw his work. I mean, think about this. Over that next 38 years, their sandals never wore out. That was an act of God. They never went hungry. Another act of God. They never went through Another act of God. And yet for all that God was doing for them, all they could do was moan and groan and bicker and complain and murmur against God's appointed leaders. And so, he said, they are a nation of wandering hearts, not knowing my ways. The word ways there literally means my moral will, God's moral will. And after 40 years, that generation died outside of My rest outside of Canaan, outside of the promised land, because God had had enough. You know how many times have we lost out on blessing because, rather than having a heart of surrender, a heart of submission in worship, we've approached worship of God and said, "Man, I what am I getting out of this? How am I going to be inspired? How am I going to be encouraged? How am I going to be elevated?" When really, when we, and again, there's nothing wrong with those things. There's time and appropriate place for that. But the worship of God is about elevating God, and it's about humbling ourselves. It's about examining ourselves. It's about bringing ourselves low so that, not just so that we're focused on ourselves, but so that we can ultimately exalt God. What does God want? How can I praise God? How can I please God? How can I lift God up? As we've seen, this warning is for us us now, today as well. Today, he says. God's voice is still speaking. You know, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7-11, the same exhortation is cited. Paul quotes this verse, and he concludes, Brethren, beware, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief, of rebellion, of murmur, of complaining, in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily, while it is called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. See, the answer for our hard hearts is to start listening to the voice of God. And this comes to us in the context of joyful worship, which is the expression of our submission to the living God, our rock, our king, our creator. Let us pray that God would give us right heart attitudes so that as we come to worship, we're coming not for what we're getting, but rather what we're giving to our great God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the text here, Lord. I pray that you would help us all to examine ourselves. That, Father, we would consider our worship, our public worship, our private worship, and determine what, it, what is worship to us. We know what your Bible, what your word says worship is. Worship's about humbly submitting ourselves to you. It's surrendering to you. It's lifting you up. It's praising you. It's giving you the value. It's giving you the glory. And so, Father, if in examination we determine that our worship is anything but that, that, Lord, I pray that you would deal with us, that you'd work in each of our hearts, and that we may examine our ways and forsake those paths that are not pleasing to you. And, Lord, I ask and pray that we would heed this warning, that, Lord, we'd guard ourselves against hard hearts, the best, the best prescription we have against a hard heart is open ears. Ears that stand ready to hear you speak at all times. And most importantly, so often, in that still small voice. And Father God, as we have open ears, I pray we'll have soft hearts. Hearts that are ready and willing to surrender and submit to you as Lord. We pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen.